Welcome to the latest episode of the Bill Jennings Breakdown, where we cover all things relating to finance, fraud, and forensic investigations. I'm your host, Bill Jennings, and I'm a partner at Veritate Forensic Accounting. I've seen just about everything during my 40 years in this field, and I want to share what I've seen with you. I'm actually working on a book for a large publishing house in London. The working title is Fraud Investigation and Forensic Accounting in the Real World. Since the book is based on cases that I investigated, I thought it would be useful to record discussions with the lawyers I work with on those cases and share those discussions with you. This is the Bill Jennings Breakdown. Peter, good afternoon. I can't say much. I appreciate you taking the time to join me to talk about what I hope will be a very uh, interesting matter. I think I, uh, as you know, I'm going to do a series of these podcasts, and they're related to a book that I'm I'm working on for a uh, publishing company in the UK. And the title of the book, of course, is Fraud Investigation, Forensic Accounting, the Real World. And so I especially wanted to do the first one of these with you because you and I have spent a great deal of time in that real world over, gosh, I guess now it's been more than 25 years working on a variety of matters that have some element of fraud or white-collar crime associated with them. And with that, I guess, you know, the first chapter I'm working on the book really relates to crime itself. You know, what constitutes a crime? what sort of people engage in criminal conduct and, you know, what the, what the harm, I guess, associated with crime can be. And I can't think of anybody else I'd rather begin talking about that with than you. Again, I said we go back 25 years. Peter Spanos is a partner at the law firm of Taylor English here in town, and he has a very unique specialty which he has uh, used to solve client problems over a long period of time. And that is that he serves as outside counsel, but, but sort of as an outside general counsel for nonprofits. And so exactly the type of case we're talking about today, Peter has had to protect a number of his clients over many, over many, many years from exactly this sort of thing. And then to try to help them, if, if unfortunately they are the victim of a crime like this. And, you know, this crime is that I'm, I'm going to mention is not one that Peter and I worked on personally, but it, and the reason I wanted to use it is it has elements of the types of crimes that, that Peter and I have worked on over the past 25 years. So this is a, relates to a nonprofit in Minneapolis, very uh, recent case, incidentally, and this is a Justice Department press release about this case, but basically a a woman named Aisha Renee Bell pled to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and Bell was charged with a felony on uh, January 29th of this year. She entered a guilty plea and uh, will be sentenced. And the interesting thing is that the victim in this case is a nonprofit in Minneapolis it's a it's called a Twin Cities nonprofit, and it provides housing and related services to the homeless. And what she did is she devised a scheme to basically siphon funds out of that nonprofit for her own personal use, and as a result, really harmed. There was a, quite a lot of money for the nonprofit. The actual amounts stolen 
were in excess of $166,000 and really harmed the nonprofit's ability to carry out its mission. And so, Peter, I know that you have clients that occasionally end up in situations just like this one and that, you know, you have to come up with very, very creative ways to help them to navigate these situations. And so with that, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the kinds of situations you've been involved in and in the organizations you represent. Well, thank you, Bill. First, let me say it's really a pleasure to be here. And I look forward to talking about this interesting area of practice with you. As you said, one of the things I do is I represent nonprofits as an outside general counsel. And more often than not, nonprofits have volunteer boards of directors. And those volunteer boards of directors are very limited in their time. And it unfortunately does happen that the people in charge of the day-to-day running of a nonprofit may take advantage of the situation as they did in the Minneapolis case you just described. So more often than I'd really care to have happen, nonprofit clients have been vulnerable to insider fraud by staff members, sometimes chief executives that they trusted to carry out their mission. There's a number of lessons to be learned from that. And as we go forward with the discussion today, hopefully we can bring some of those out. Let's let's use this uh, case as as a um, a platform. But what I'd really like to do is sort of drill down on, you know, what kinds of things happen, the sort of phone calls you get from clients, and what you do when when those phone calls inevitably come in. And so, let's say in this case that the the president of the nonprofit calls you and says, "Hey." you know, you're acting as our external general counsel and something unusual has happened. Our controller will not provide me with financial information. It just seems quite odd. She's come up with many different excuses and and many different ways to, to stall. And I just wondered what you thought I should do. That's a great question, Bill, especially because that kind of situation does occur again, because of the reliance placed on on the staff by what are often volunteer uh, community-minded officers of the association or directors of the association. The first thing that happens in a situation like that is the client and I need to talk about making sure that we obtain the maximum amount of information possible in the situation and that we immediately stop relying on anything except the real base documents. For example, if that call were, were something like, I just became president of my local nonprofit charitable association, and for some reason I can't get a financial statement or I can't look at the financial documents for the preceding year, I would tell the client that's a red flag because the board has a fiduciary duty to understand those documents and be informed. And the staff has a employment-related fiduciary duty, not exactly the same source, but definitely a duty to provide that information to the board of directors. So anytime you have someone who is not forthcoming with information that should be there, that's a red flag that something probably is even more wrong under the surface and needs to be investigated. So the first step is to gather the information, confront the staff person, 
and investigate the matter to find out what information can be obtained, who has it, where it's kept, and then begin the process of taking a look at it. Well, let's say you give that advice and the president acts on it immediately and gathers up basically incomplete financial statements and supporting documentation, especially bank records and records of donations and, and also records related to payments that were made by the charitable organization and finds that it looks like not all of the donations have been deposited in the bank accounts. The financial statements seem incomplete and have some really unusual entries. And it looks like we haven't paid a lot of our vendors in, in a long time and they're getting, they're getting angry about not being paid. And, and of course, the president then obviously is, is going to be on, on notice that, gee, this, something's really wrong here. And he or she calls you again and, and delivers this terrible news. What, what do you say then? What we say then, Bill, is we have to get control of the situation. We have to continue the investigation. And we have to find a responsible party to put in charge of the nonprofit while we determine what happened. Because at this point, we must realize that business did not occur as it's supposed to have occurred, that some fraud or theft has occurred, and it has to be addressed. And the first step in that is to remove the people who have been in charge of either that function of the nonprofit or maybe in charge of the nonprofit itself, to have members of the board of directors immediately form a committee or a subcommittee to oversee the effort of checking into this and dealing with it, to perhaps get outside help in doing the calculations or review of documents, and to using the, the, the whatever resources may be available, have legal counsel investigate to come up with what has happened and the scope of any loss that might have occurred. And, and in this kind of situation, those are serious indicators of a loss of assets that has to be addressed. Let's say on that basis, the board decides one of the things we need to do immediately is to terminate this controller of ours. And so they, now would they do that or would they ask you to do that? Well, the board, the board would have to take that as a board action. But of course, I would routinely advise the board, especially on high level executive terminations, because we want those to be conducted in accordance with law and not trigger any claims. Unfortunately, in my experience, when we terminate a high-level executive or responsible person for, for cause related to a suspected financial problem, very often they fight back. And what often happens is you terminate the person and they go out and find a lawyer and file suit. Makes life more complicated because now not only you have to get control of the records of the association to find out what's going on. But now you're also defending a lawsuit and still trying to conduct an investigation to determine what assets may be missing and where they may have gone. And let's say that's exactly what happens here. So the controller's terminated. She retains legal counsel and you are put on notice that they intend to file suit. What would be the best way to prepare to defend that type of litigation? Well, number one, we would do a complete background review of the controller, uh, the person in question, 
and find out what else the controller may have done or be involved in. Very often, Bill, when a fraud occurs, there are other indications in the person's background that perhaps were not known or perhaps were ignored or perhaps didn't come to light, but which indicates some of the motive perhaps or the past dealings that are going to be helpful in addressing that situation. Another thing, of course, is let's assume also that our investigation is pretty much done with the financial records at this point, and a careful examination of those has revealed there's a specific loss. Let's say a quarter million dollars has has disappeared from the accounts and not been used to pay creditors or whatever, and we, and there's no record as to where that where that took place or what, what happened. Well, then the natural thing is to try to recover the money from the wrongdoer. So we would communicate to counsel for the former employee that we have a serious counterclaim for fraud or theft or perhaps other things, other types of cause against that person. Now that normally doesn't, in my experience, totally settle the issue. Very often there's there's going to be a dispute as to even what happened or even a dispute as to whether there's actually a loss or whether things are okay. But ultimately we might end up court in court asserting a counterclaim for restitution, or we might just be making the claim in discussions with opposing counsel. Sometimes opposing counsel will realize that their client is suspected of a serious fraud and they won't want to pursue the case any further. Sometimes opposing counsel wants to do everything they can. It just depends. But the first thing is to, one way or the other, try to get restitution from the wrongdoer. That may or may not be possible. I've had the unfortunate experience in many of these cases that the wrongdoer does not have a lot in the way of assets. Let's say that's the case here. Let's say that the wrongdoer's lawyer realizes that the worst thing in the world would be to make a public record of this on the chance that you might turn it over to law enforcement and advises his client accordingly or her client accordingly, and that restitution will be necessary in this case in order for them to have any hope of, of being able to escape without doing prison time. It, but when that happens, let's say the wrongdoer, uh, and, and let's say you make some specific request for restitution, the wrongdoer then declares bankruptcy. What, what, what do you do then? Okay. Well, in your primary pursuit of the former employee for restitution, you've hit what amounts to, in practical terms, a roadblock. Even if the wrongdoer, the former employee, is indicted for a crime, and this kind of conduct would be a crime, and even though restitution is possible as part of the outcome of the criminal matter, there may be nothing there to make restitution with, and the government can only give you through the criminal proceeding what they're able to find. That is, if they are able to literally find money in the hands of the defendant, the former employee, but most of the time that doesn't actually occur. Now, bankruptcy is not a good solution. If anything, it's kind of the end of the road of the primary line of of going after this because the bankruptcy court, first of all, you have to have a claim which means that the counterclaim against the former employee has to be brought to judgment before you have a claim. At that point, you have a claim in bankruptcy. The second issue, though, is that the bankruptcy court can only administer assets that it has control of. 
the bankrupt person has to have the trustee in bankruptcy take their assets. But what if there are no assets? Or what if those assets are, are in a state where there's a substantial exclusion for the primary residence? Or those assets are in a trust? Or those assets are held by joint account holders who are not themselves involved in the fraud? For all these reasons, or simply there might not be enough assets. The person might have spent the money that they, they took, the money that they embezzled, and there might be nothing to pursue. So the bankruptcy court can only administer assets. And then the third problem, Bill, is the priority. As a, even as a judgment creditor, the nonprofit association stands in line behind the secured creditors, you know, such as the holder of the mortgage on the house, uh, such as the holder of the loan on cars or vacation homes, and other kinds of creditors, credit cards, and that kind of thing. So you become a general creditor of of a person or persons who has very little to offer in the way of assets. That means you have to think of alternative strategies. Let's assume for this purpose, and I actually had a case like this many years ago where the the wrongdoer was a gambling addict. And uh, I I remember his uh, criminal defense lawyer made a plea agreement deal with the U.S. attorney here in the Northern District. And part of the agreement was that the wrongdoer is going to try to cooperate in making recoveries for the nonprofit. And I, I was the person who was going to work with him to try to make that happen. And I, I can still remember he showed up at my office with several banker's boxes full of expired lottery tickets. And uh, apparently what he was trying to do was to win back the amount that he had stolen unsuccessfully. So let's say it's something like that, and, and, and the, the wrongdoer now just has sort of a hat full of rain and nothing really tangible to proceed against. Are there other kinds of avenues that might be open to make some recovery for the nonprofit? Yes, there are. Depends on the circumstances, of course, Bill, but there are always the possibility that other persons may have played a role in allowing the theft to happen or even covering up the theft or even participating to some degree in the theft. A one primary thing to look at very quickly is would be co-employees, other employees who may have been necessary for the person to perform their fraudulent acts. In a larger organization, it's hard to get away with those things with normal controls if someone else isn't covering up for you or assisting you. So you can perhaps pursue that route. But there again, you're going against individuals. There are also outside sources. In the case you mentioned in Minnesota, there perhaps were some vendors involved. And sometimes you find vendors who are getting kickbacks and you can go after them for receipt of illegal payments. So you look at those transactions as well. Another key thing, and this is something I know you have experience with, another key thing is to look at the accountants that were involved in uh, representing the, the nonprofit at the time. For example, nonprofits are required to file annual reporting type tax returns, Form 990s with the IRS. Those Form 990s are supposed to accurately show the financial condition and the expenditures in a general way of the nonprofit. To the extent there was a fraud, those 990s have to be wrong or have to be inconsistent with themselves. Either they cover up the fact that money went missing by misclassifying it or 
are otherwise not being accurate on the books, or they don't bother to cover it up and they're inconsistent and the amount of the fraud shows up in comparing the tax returns and the base documents over time. So it could well be that a CPA firm who is filing those tax returns or a CPA firm that was furnishing financial reports either was not diligent in checking the documents that they were given for accuracy. It could also especially be that the CPA firm saw things which would lead them to necessarily make certain inquiries. They have a professional duty when faced with certain kinds of information to make further inquiries and not just accept on face value something that looks wrong or doesn't add up or is inconsistent from time to time, that kind of thing. So, and, and had they done a better job, had they noticed the discrepancy and not overlooked it or even participated in it, then the damage might not have occurred. So they can be responsible. So you want to, in general, Bill, you want to look very hard at other people who may have been involved in either allowing the transaction to happen or in some cases actually participating in the transaction. You go after the collateral parties. And that can be on the basis of a knowing fraud themselves or it can be on the basis of a breach of duty whereby the breach of duty was instrumental in leading to or covering up the harm and either increasing or not allowing the, the nonprofit to determine uh, what was going on in time to prevent the losses. That, that's an excellent point. You're exactly right. Uh, there are a variety of professionals who would have provided services to this nonprofit and would have been required to adhere to their own professional standards. And in most states, I mean, obviously correct me on this if I'm in, if I'm wrong, but in most states, the the threshold for liability is is much lower for a professional than it would be for a layperson. So, you know, where a, a layperson would have to engage in, in use, forgive me, my legal opinion, and uh, $2 will buy you a coffee at Starbucks, but uh, in the cases that I've been involved in, a uh, layperson uh, has a, a threshold standard that is described by lawyers as gross negligence, whereas professionals typically in most states have a threshold that would be a simple negligence threshold. Well, that, that's certainly true about simple negligence. And also, Bill, and, and not to interrupt you, but... No, it's fine. We're also that... The You're the lawyer. <laughs> professionals I just play have, one on podcast. Yeah. The <laughs> professionals have an enhanced duty as professionals to at least their client. Point. And yeah. in the case of a certified public accountant, CPA, yeah. they have a duty objectively to the public interest. Excellent to point. To it, the companies not only report their taxes and pay them correctly, but also that their books and records match certain standards. And that's a duty that they owe absolutely in their profession. And of course, a duty they specifically owe to their clients. Right. Now, that's excellent. That's an excellent point. You know, it occurred to me too, when you were talking about the 990s, they, they also have a duty to the Internal Revenue Service that transcends their, their client relationship in, in this regard. Only with respect to providing accurate information. So this is the thing you mentioned earlier about the returns, and you're exactly right. The returns would necessarily have to be inaccurate. So that's that's a good point, which 
It's a nice segue into another question I want to ask you, which is, in a matter like this, would you recommend, or under what circumstance might you recommend that your client try to get law enforcement involved? I think that law enforcement should be involved from the very beginning. Anytime the the problem looks like it is a criminal act, as well as a you know a breach of duty and and so on. I think it doesn't make sense to operate without law enforcement. As a lawyer, I think it enhances my ability to recover funds from the clients if at the same time law enforcement is trying to enforce the law. I think it it, it shortens the process. It may, if law enforcement is, is fortunate, it may even lead to some restitution through the law enforcement process. I think the last thing that you want to do is try to settle something privately and leave the wrongdoer not to face the law. Ultimately, there may be a plea bargain or something like that. But remember that the wrongdoer is going to go on in life. And we don't want the wrongdoer to be free to do this to someone else now that they know how. Right. Now, that's an excellent point. That's a very good point. That also loops back to your background checkpoint. You know, it could be the case that that we actually, your client, is only a um, one in a line of victims that go back some ways because this wrongdoer was really never dealt with properly in terms of the victim going to law enforcement. So that's that's an excellent point. Yeah, actually, Bill, in a surprising large fraction of these cases, we do ultimately find find that the employee who commits the fraud or embezzlement actually has a related history. Sometimes this is the worst thing they've done, but very seldom do we find it's the only thing. Right. And I remember also we've had cases where the person was simultaneously cheating or defrauding or, or taking money from other unrelated organizations. Right. Exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, um, in many cases, when people cross that line, then they become what, what I refer to as opportunity criminals. They um, Anything that sort of presents itself as an opportunity, they, they tend to take advantage of. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's an, it's an unfortunate fact about some human nature. And yes. in addition to that, people can often get themselves in situations where temptation overcomes their, whatever might be their inclination to good behavior, absent the temptation, the temptation just drives them to a bad result. Yes, indeed. That, that is certainly true, which is a nice segue into another point, which is, let's say that either at this point where, you know, we've, we've done all we can do for your client, nonprofit, who's been a victim, or going back to the other end, before this terrible thing happens, do you counsel with your nonprofit clients about, you know, preventative measures, how, how to make sure this doesn't happen? Bill, it, it, would be, it would be remiss of me not to spend a great deal of time on counseling to prevent this from happening, both in general. And I, I try to do this with nonprofit clients, especially because many times with volunteer boards of directors, they need to pay special attention to things, but even in regular corporations, people have to realize they have a fiduciary duty to understand what's going on in the, in the organization and to watch over it. So 
even if nothing occurs, I try to stress with clients that there are ways to prevent this, which will reduce the incidence and the likelihood that these kinds of things will happen. Then also, it's very important if something like this does occur to candidly talk to the client about what went wrong. Not only the red flags or the the indicators that may have ultimately led to the discovery, the actual discovery, but what are the circumstances that should have told people who are working with the organization before this happened that it could happen? For example, finding a discrepancy in a financial report or not getting a a financial report or getting resistance, that kind of thing. Obviously, that's a tip-off something has happened, as we talked about. But it should also be concerning if the board of directors is only ever given short summaries of the finances. And there isn't either at the full board or with a subcommittee of the board, an audit committee that in detail goes through the annual audit process and comes to understand what is going on in an in-depth manner. This can be done by part of the board, but if it's not being done, that in itself is an indicator that sooner or later something may go wrong. Another, another factor is many times in a nonprofit, you have boards of directors that change over regularly. The tenure is short, maybe as, as short as a year. Well, then you need to go through a leadership education process to make sure that the people who are coming in are aware of what they need to do to properly stay on top of the organization and to properly manage the organization for the interest or charitable interest that it was formed. If you find that over a period of time, the leadership simply accepts what is done and doesn't inquire about the past, then that's also an indicator that something like this could easily happen to that organization. And then finally, you have the the sole source issue. Whenever you're dealing with finances and cash flow and so forth. As a basic principle, there have to be more than one set of eyes watching the process. And if, and very often in the lean staffing that nonprofits have to do, that is not fully implemented. It's very important to have an objective set of eyes, especially, for example, a treasurer or a finance committee on the board of directors that more closely watches the performance of the staff who are involved in the financial affairs. And I think that that might be one of the most important steps that any organization could take. And it's especially important. It's, it's ironic. It's a bit of a conundrum, but it's, it's especially important in organizations that do have very lean staff complements, which is unfortunately, or, you know, fortunately, maybe an inherent issue with many nonprofits because they're trying to use most of the donations for the mission that um, that they collected the money for. Yeah, absolutely. They don't want to spend money at overhead. Right. And, and nonprofits, quite frankly, get criticized if their overhead is large in relation to the donations and the uses of the money. And justifiably, that's a concern. But you cannot go too far down that road and eliminate the oversight. There's also sometimes a tendency of people of goodwill to not check. I don't advocate people not trusting or being suspicious. But on the other hand, it's probably always going to be a mistake to never routinely question, not out of suspicion, but out of prudence. You, you, can, trust, you can trust people 
because you believe that they fulfill the mission of the nonprofit as well. But that doesn't mean you can ignore the fiduciary duty to be familiar with and to oversee the operations. That, that, that is an excellent point, and it has a related benefit, which I see a lot in my work, which is that for the, the people who are stakeholders in the nonprofit, their perception of reality forms their reality. It really is not what actually is happening. It's what they perceive to be happening. And if they perceive that someone is checking, someone is verifying, you know, certainly we trust everyone until they prove to us that they're not worth our trust. But we also make it clear that we're going to verify. We trust everyone. We, we believe everyone is committed to the mission, but we're going to verify because that is our obligation to our donors. I can't tell you how powerful that is. Just the whether or not in reality they're, you know, looking at every bank reconciliation and, and verifying every entry in the financial statements. If, there is a perception that they are doing those things that that goes a long way in terms of preventing people from engaging in, in illegal or unethical conduct. Yeah. Bill, that reminds me about a matter that's been in the news recently, and that is the National Rifle Association. Okay. The, the attorney general of the state of New York is currently attempting to dissolve the National Rifle Association. And, the complaint that the attorney general has is that through mismanagement, certain executives and perhaps certain members of the National Rifle Association treated themselves to lavish benefits. Now, they didn't steal any money, but they perhaps spent more money than is necessary and engaged in, in perhaps more lavish travel and entertainment than was in the best interests of the association not taking a position on the merits of that, which is a controversial case, but it underscores this point. No one can ignore the fact that nonprofits are held to a high standard of of accountability. And if you want your nonprofit to succeed, you should be able to adhere to that high standard in a public and visible way. And that brings you back to your comments about perception. To the extent people might now perceive that the National Rifle Association is tainted with some form of malfeasance financially, that undermines its mission. Whether you believe in the mission or not, it's an example to those who have other nonprofits whose mission they hold dear, and the same thing could happen to them. You know, in the case of the Minnesota case for housing or feeding the homeless, you know, this doesn't help donations. It doesn't help the mission of the association. The association then falls in the eyes of the public, and that perception can harm the mission. So it's important to be able to say, we know we're being run correctly. We know that the money is being cared for, and we know that we're spending things properly on our mission, and we can verify that with with positive actions we've taken. That, That point that you just made is critically, critically important. And I, I have witnessed that firsthand when there is a scandal like that, donations and contributions can literally fall through the floor. I, I, I can remember years ago being hired by the Roman Catholic Church to conduct an investigation in Archbishop. And the, the big reason that they were extraordinarily interested in, in moving with great urgency through the investigation was following the 
lurid details of the scandal coming out, you know, where the, and it involved the archbishop having a relationship with a, a woman who was a church member. And uh, actually, according to her, and she went on national television, all this sort of thing, but, you know, secretly marrying them in a hotel room in, uh, at the plaza in New York. You know, whether or not all that was true, that, that's what she said on national television. And I'm telling you, I was there. The, the extent to which contributions fell following those revelations was startling. I mean, it was startling. The church removed this archbishop, replaced him with another archbishop who had a very uh, clean, clean, solid record. It wasn't until that investigation was completed and that new archbishop could assure the, 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 the members of the archdiocese that, uh, in fact, no money, fortunately, no money had gone from the church to the woman that they were able to recover. It, it was an awful thing. I mean, it was just an awful, awful thing. And, and it's an excellent point and one that we hadn't covered, which is what are the other costs? You know, we, we had the direct cost in the Minneapolis case of 166000 but, you know, what, what's the cost in terms of, you know, loss of donations and, and, you know, the brand being tarnished and all of that? And those bill are costs which can't be recovered from anyone. Right. That's right. Well, Peter, I think we're about at our uh, time limit here. I've thought about what to do in, in, in the case of people who see the podcast and would like to follow up with you on other questions. Is there some way that they might be, I know I didn't prepare you for this, but some way that they might be able to contact you. Um, Bill, I can give you my email address. Okay, that'd be great. Um, which is pspanos, P.S. P-A-N-O-S, at taylorenglish.com. That's great. And if, if, for example, you're a volunteer leader in a charitable organization or a, a trade group or a foundation and you have concerns about whether as a volunteer leader, for example, as a member of board of directors or an officer, you need some legal advice on something, perhaps it would be a good idea to chat and see if there's something that needs to be dealt with. That's great, Peter. I really appreciate you being uh, good enough to make yourself available in that way. And I can't say much. I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me about this really, really sort of important and, and not well understood area of nonprofit uh, governance. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the recording and we'll go from there. Thanks again for listening to the Bill Jennings Breakdown. If you'd like to connect or have any questions regarding forensic accounting or fraud investigation, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at bjennings, B-J-E-N-N-I-N-G-S, at verithaf, V-E-R-I-T-A-F dot com. I'm always happy to be a resource. I can offer any wisdom or if you have any specific questions about a case. Look for the next installment of the Bill Jennings Breakdown. Thanks again.